1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Shiloh, we are finishing out the Book of Ether today. So, we get to start off here with this Ether Chapter 12, which is this really just wonderful discourse by Moroni commentary on the concept of faith and charity and and everything that's going on with the preaching of ether right now. Again, this is where Moroni kind of digresses a bit into his commentary, and we have to end up coming back to the story in a couple chapters because Moroni has gotten so interested in a thus we see type of tangent, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Chapter twelve is just beautiful. It's just gorgeous scripture. So much there. Thirteen gets into some prophecy. He's abridging the prophecies of Ether here that are seem particularly important to him, and gets into stuff about New Jerusalem and and the last days type of stuff. Then you get he returns back to the story, and we see the last sort of death throes of the Jaredite civilization where we start this war that's not going to end and it's just back and forth until everyone kills everyone. Central figure here being Coriantumr um, for some reason. there's must be more about Coriantumr. I mean obviously there's more about Coriantor than we find out in this record here that means that he was a central figure. Uh, the Lord gives him, all these opportunities to repent by sending him prophets. And and Coriantum does a couple times kind of decides to repent, but the society around him, the momentum is so strong in the direction of war that regardless of Coriantum's desires at this point, um, the people are moving in that direction and Coriantum kind of gets swept along with it. Then we end this off with this, most graphic part probably of the Book of Mormon right
1: <laughs> yeah this is a really detailed extinction
0: yeah and uh, and then the last words of ether you know so we have this sort of like microcosm of the the longer Book of Mormon version that we get um, even if we don't get as many proper nouns among the Nephites and Lamanites in terms of their battles at the end but similar types of stuff happens here where, the destruction of the people there's commentary on the secret combinations a little bit there that uh, talks in a way that we haven't quite talked about before we might have brief things to say about that anyway you know this doesn't end on a a very happy note in particular you know ethers content with the with what the lord has commanded him to do in recording this and says at the end he doesn't mind what happens to him as, as long as the lord takes care of him in the end and he has faith that he will so again some great things to start off with in chapter 12 and then we're going to kind of go downhill from there (laughs) (laughs) but uh yes starting off here in chapter 12 this this discussion about uh, what ether does and crying faith and repentance unto the people is just just really powerful and um i read it in a little bit different way than i have before in this and um, i'm still kind of digesting a little bit of of what uh, Moroni says here, it, uh, it was very uh, very interesting to me this time reading through it in a little bit different way.
1: Yeah, me too. When I started reading about faith in chapter 12, I saw it in a completely different way than I'd ever seen it before. And in the margin, I wrote that, that faith is the most central motivating essence of our being. And as God begins to pull us into him, we see how much that essence is in us, and it becomes the source of all of our action. It's fascinating because when we started talking about the brother of Jared before, and we started talking about this cloud and everything that was out there and that God was this undefined mass, yet they still followed it. There was something that still pulled them. In my life, I've recognized that there are moments when I feel like I'm on the cusp or the just like the edge of something that... I've never understood before. It's in those moments when if I feel like I push it, then I kind of drive it away. But if I sit there with it and just allow it to come, then it manifests itself. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing.
0: Dues from heaven, shall
1: Yeah, it's a great way to put it. You know, section 121 with those dues from heaven can't force the dues from heaven to appear. They just, it happens naturally and gradually. And it's just a beautiful thing that the more you let go, the more it just comes and it's so counterintuitive and sometimes paradoxical, but when you just let it go, it comes. In this particular way, you begin to see how the Jaredites, and that allegory we've talked about in the for the last two weeks, is as they, like, they follow that cloud, it's like God pulling them, pulling them from, and I kind of imagine that they have this inner driving force that they're following this, and this desire to follow this. And God eventually makes himself manifest to the brother of Jared, to where he begins to see more purely the nature of God. And we had that great discussion in the last two weeks. So when we come to this, I'm beginning to see that faith, you know, for the most part of my life, I've unintentionally equated faith with belief. And I've made the two things. And we've had that discussion quite a bit already. But faith now is, this for me, is this inner sense, deepest inner sense of motivation As I turn now to seeing God in a new way, it's like I I feel pulled into seeing and, and into following God. And it's driven by this internal sense of being that I can only define as love. It's just this love that's pulling me into this essence of to be with God. When I let that grow within me, it's nothing else around me matters. It's just that this thing, and, and I want to do all the things that keep that in my life. Through that, I begin to see God differently. And so there's this repentance process, right? We begin to see God in a new way. So here in verse 3, where it says that Ether came about, actually in verse 2, it says he couldn't be restrained. So he went out to preach repentance to the people because the Spirit of the Lord that was within him. For he did cry from the morning, even until going down... Going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. And I think this is just an amazingly beautiful verse, because here we have this concept that we are believing in God unto repentance it's not this concept that I've had held most of my life where I've got to believe in God harder. I've got to believe in him more I, because I don't even know what that means. Like, how do you believe in God more? I've got to believe in God harder. I just, what's got, what's come is I've let go of kind of the, the need to control and the need to like double down on my belief. It's not doubt. It's not skepticism. It's a releasing of the stress and the anxiety and of doubt and of skepticism. It's a releasing of everything. Having this trust that there is a loving God on the other side of that surrender and that release, who's there to reveal, who wants to reveal himself. And that's where repentance comes in. It's a God that wants to reveal himself, but with so long as we're too busy clamping down on me and mine and what I think is it, that just it doesn't happen. And so here I see what Ether is coming out and talking about is there's this, this new way of seeing God. That why don't you see God this new way? And wherefore whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. And I've talked about, and everybody has missionary stories. My missionary story was that. We loved our mission president so much that you could just feel his love for us. It just permeated the room, and all we wanted to do was to love him and have him love us. And so that was just the motivation by which all things happened. We were a very obedient group of missionaries. But when you asked, well, like, why are we so obedient? It wasn't because we were expecting blessings. It wasn't because we were working on being blessed. It wasn't because we wanted to get something out of it. It was simply. We love the mission president, we know he loved us, and we just acted in that love. And so when I see this here with God, it's the same kind of thing that when we're there and we start to see God manifest himself, what is present there, is love. And all we can do is act in that love and then faith, that inner driving motivation when it's compared with when it's brought into unity with that love, Faith is a driving motivator for all things. It's the essence by which we act, and when we act in the love of God, it only makes sense that there's hope. There's only makes sense that you can only ever hope for a better world, because no matter what happens to you, you can be in prison and being burned alive, and you still have hope for a better world, because you know that you're in that perfect, present moment with God. Because that's just all that encompasses your life anymore. So yeah, just these these two or three verses, when I was reading these this time through, I spent <laughs> the majority of my time just on these few verses because they stood out to me were so powerful for me
0: you know and and i was thinking a lot of the same things as i was reading through these first four ether is is talking about here about the fruits of repentance repentance that comes from our faith in god and from seeing him in a new way and so often culturally or or i, I don't know exactly how it happens but I know for a long time, I looked at repentance as the actual changing of our habits and, and everything. And it can be termed that, but I think we need to look at it a little bit differently. We need to look at, like, our change in our works and our behavior as the fruits of repentance. And we need to realize that the real repentance comes when we are changing our view about God and the world. And we're willing to follow Christ, and it's just that willingness and that change in our view of God that is the repentance. And then the things that follow from that are those fruits of repentance. We could say he um, either calls them abounding, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God, led to glorify God because of our change of our view of Him, because of are being brought to him and feeling his love, and so that's the natural fruit of it. You know, again, we we often will get the cart before the horse on this. We talk about we need to change the behavior, and then changing our behavior will then change our view of God. And I think that's kind of pushing on a string, as it were. It's not that that can't um, can't have some success in in some ways, but it's not really the way, right? It doesn't really get us. Into a full experience with God in my in my experience, so to speak. You know, here he goes on with verse five, and it came to pass that either did prophesy great and marvelous things unto the people, which they did not believe because they saw them not. And you know, uh, I wanted in my mind to change this around, switch these these phrases around a little bit because I, well, there's nothing wrong with verse five the way it is. I wanted to switch it around because it it showed me something a little bit different, a different way to view this. I might have uh, looked at this something like this. Ether did prophesy great and marvelous things of the people, which they did not see because they did not believe. I've seen so much that, again, so much depends on our view of God. What we see in the world, what we see in the scriptures, what we see in others really is a function of how we see God. And there's so much more for us to see when we see God as He is. And that's what is so powerful about the efforts of the prophets. And it talks, he goes into the uh, examples of faith here and talking about how all of these prophets were able to perform these miracles by their faith. I like to bring up a lot of times the example of Enoch where he goes and washes his eyes and then he sees all the spirits of men and then he's able to go out and preach repentance to them because he sees God as God is and because of that he sees men as they are. He has that gift of seeing things as they are and when you go preach to someone you see who they really are. You see their potential and so you're not burdened by these prejudices, or prejudices, I guess is probably the only term that we need to apply to that, that would prevent us from treating and loving and persuading that person in the way that they really need. And that, I think, is is what so much holds us back from being able to connect with other people and persuade them um, of truth. So that's what I see out of that verse. There, that continues on to verse six here. Now, Marona I, would, I, Marona, I would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. I uh, This time, I uh, there's a million ways to see this verse, but this time I, I just looked at it in terms of how I would see another person. Another person that I want to persuade to follow Christ and that so much of those efforts need to be based on hope and faith um, that I may not see with my natural eyes what I expect to see of somebody that I think might be following Christ. But if I'm seeing with my spiritual eyes, then I'm going to have that hope and that faith and that charity towards that person that will be a more sure way of realizing that reality that that spiritually may already exist but i just need to have the faith to accept and see it
1: something you said ben about putting the cart before the horse and and pushing the string as opposed to pulling it made me think about something we talked about earlier in a few episodes of the Nephites and about how the Nephites were an oath-bound society that made oaths and covenants, and then they tried to live into them, as opposed to we have a few different situations and examples with the Lamanites when they would have, I guess, even in the waters of uh, of Mormon, when they had a conversion and they had this transformative event with God, and then. The baptism and the symbol and the ordinance and the oaths were basically in memory of the event that already happened. And and so there's like this, throughout the Book of Mormon, there's even examples of kind of putting the cart before the horse that there's nothing wrong with making the covenants and doing the covenants first before the conver- the deep conversion. So long as we really readily recognize that we're still supposed to go out and have experiences that the symbols represent. Because for the waters of Mormon, those those symbols and those ordinances were after the fact, and they symbolized what had already happened—the experience they've already happened—and so it was more meaningful. It was deeper. It was they had had a relationship with God, and then every time they went back to the sacrament or they went back to the baptism or to those moments, that's what that invoked. But now, and I think when I listen to the General Authorities talk, you hear them talking about having that conversion having those those moments after we're baptized and after the temple and after those covenants where we then begin to live in those. But I think a lot of the time in the culture has taken that to mean that we just need to go back and re-engage in the ordinance. And it's like, oh, well, I just need to go back and re-engage in the ordinance because the, it's the ordinance that's important. It's the, it's the the trip to the temple. And while that is important, it's only symbolic of something else that's supposed to happen. So it's actually experiencing that gospel. And that brought out when you were talking about that uh, kind of the cart before the horse thing. Because so I think there's a lot of experiences in the Book of Mormon that are exactly like that. And the prophets here t- seem to be talking about having those moments of conversion and then going and living into those uh, throughout the rest of your life. So really powerful stuff. And then in uh, you, you, verse, you quoted verse 6. One of the things that stood out to me there as well was it says that I would show into the world that faith is things which are hoped for. We can have that true motivating desire, but if it's in the wrong things and if we're going out there, we're not going to have a very good time. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> right? And one of the things that has brought me the most amount of sympathy and empathy for my fellow men, and this comes from a long life of being in politics and of engaging in politics and being very politically active and basically villainizing the other who doesn't agree with me because you you know you are obviously ignorant and stupid and don't know what I I know and you don't you don't know what it means to have true liberty and freedom and you don't know what rights really are and there's a thousand ways in politics that you can vilify the other and I've had a lot of sore repenting to do <laughs> in regards of that entire life and I'll probably be still repenting and dealing with things way into my future but that said one of the things that started to bring me out of that othering, was to recognize that every human being is acting in what they perceive as the futurity of their own happiness, in the progression and the obtaining of their own happiness. You know, this goes back to Aristotle, that what makes a human being a human being is that we are seeking for eudaimonia, we're seeking for flourishing, we're seeking for happiness. Lehi said it in Second Nephi, that Adam felt that men might be, and men exist, and men are, that we might have joy. Those things are the central motivating action from all human beings. And I started to recognize that some people are just looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And I have to. And the minute that I have to come down to that level to recognize that we're all searching, trying to search for happiness, we're all trying to search for hope, we're all trying to search for these things because that's a central motivating essence of our humanity, Then at that point, I had to be a lot more humble in how I approached the differences of opinions that I had with other people, and so when I read verse six, and he's saying that faith, that true faith, come, I was shown to the world that faith are the things which are hoped for and not seen. That true faith elicits and brings about this hope. It brings about the true nature of this hope. But when we have to have faith in God, we also have to recognize that. We are having faith in the right God. Because if I have faith in a God that's simply a projection of my ego, that I have an idea of God that really agrees with my natural man, that having faith in that God is not going to transform me. It's not going to call me to be something better. And I'm going to literally damn myself in that kind of way of being. And so the question is, well, how do we then have the correct relationship with God? How do we have the true knowledge of God? And that becomes what repentance is all about. It's learning to see God anew. We don't feel God full of our own projections and our own ego and our own idea of God. But we surrender, we release, we let all of that go. And then what is present is this kind, loving, beautifully compassionate God who wants to reveal himself to us as he consistently does because as one of the things that uh, you know I talk about later on is when the Lord sends ether back over to Coriantomer, and he does this a few different times throughout the the scriptures where he sends prophets to the kings or the leaders when they won't listen when there's no one there where we've talked about this before about mm-hmm. how prophets have been sent and nobody listens and in Abinadi's case, there was only one person who listened. It was Alma the Elder, And Abinadi never even actually knew that anybody listened. He died having no idea that someone was converted from that. But yet, that one act, him going into that one, that one space there with King Noah, changed the entire course of the Nephite nation. And so it was an incredibly important, pivotal event. And so we see prophets and God coming into moments where we don't have any record of if anybody was converted. We don't have any record that if somebody else other than Coriantum or heard Ether or was converted, or whether or not God was just always there trying to reclaim and to bring in and to get people under his wing. And they consistently refuse to. They will not empty their thoughts of God. And here in Ether, that's one of the more prominent themes that I find with the people, because these people... Have to realize that the people of Ether, these uh, the Jaredite nation, these guys exist before the law of Moses. These guys exist before Abraham. These guys exist before that whole thing happened. They don't have any of this as it was constituted throughout the rest of the scriptures. These people have a completely different divine genealogy as far as their prophets are concerned and their contexts are concerned.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, these people have never heard of Abraham.
1: Right. Yeah, these are people completely different yeah and they have a completely different context to god and a completely different relationship and a and a completely different perspective to repent from and a new way to see god too and so but god is always coming down trying to reclaim them so when we see that consistent coming to them and yet these people man they never give god a second chance they just consistently time after time after time just double down on their own wickedness. It's it's really an incredible, interesting story here in Ether.
0: As you were talking about that, it, it I, was, I was looking over verse 8. It says, But because of the faith of men, he has shown himself unto the world and glorified the name of the Father and prepared a way that thereby others might be partakers of the heavenly gift, that they might hope for those things which they have not seen. So this is referencing Christ's mortal ministry Maybe in particular, but all the examples and all the times that the Lord has reached out for His children, it reminded me. I think I've quoted it before, but it reminded me of a part from the talk uh, by Jeffrey R. Holland uh, that he gave back in two thousand three, called "The Grandeur of God." I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from it because he references this this point here in, in terms of how Jesus uh, glorified the name of the Father, as it says. It says, in that sense. Jesus did not come to improve God's view of man nearly so much as he came to improve man's view of God and to plead with them to love their Heavenly Father as he has always and will always love them. The plan of God, the power of God, the holiness of God, yes, even the anger and the judgment of God they had occasion to understand, but the love of God, the profound depth of his devotion to his children, They still did not fully know until Christ came. So feeding the hungry, healing the sick, rebuking hypocrisy, pleading for faith, this was Christ showing us the way of the Father. He who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, and full of goodness. In his life and especially in his death, Christ was declaring, This is God's compassion I am showing you, as well as that of my own in the perfect Son's manifestation of the perfect Father's care, in their mutual suffering and shared sorrow for the sins and heartaches of the rest of us, we see ultimate meaning in the declaration, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, you know, going back to that concept of, of repentance and that the whole purpose of Christ coming was so that we could have this physical, concrete, in-our-face example of who God really was. And that from that, we could choose to, to follow Christ in every sense of that word.
1: In Ether 12, verse 33, it says, And again, I remember that what thou hast said, that thou hast loved the world, even into the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. I think that fits right into what you're saying. You know, You, you mentioned it, I think, last week, if not the week before, that Christ came and his love was not to kill the other, but that he would be killed. Now, that's the sacredness of Gethsemane and the sacredness of Calvary. The book of Mark, we know in the Gospels, one of its prominent themes is that when Jesus could have zigged and saved his life, he zagged. I mean, he, he explicitly marched his way to the cross. It wasn't something that happened to him. It's something that he chose. He He walked, he walked the path to the cross. And so we have a willingly, willing, self-sacrificing God who is willing to sacrifice himself rather than sacrifice others. And it's just in a beautiful way of seeing this God who teaches us, who came in, made himself flesh, showed us through the example of Jesus Christ what we're capable of, what our true humanity is capable of. And what it is that when it says that we take upon ourselves the name of Christ is that we follow Jesus Christ to the cross. You know, it's this famous <laughs> this famous phrase that says, Everyone wants to follow Jesus until they see where he's walking towards. Right? Is like we nobody wants to walk towards the cross. It's like it's all fine and great and good when you got, you know, fish and bread appearing out of nowhere and you see people walking on water. That's cool. When you see people getting healed and the sick, and you want to see the You want to see the healer work his art. That's awesome. But you see him walking towards the cross and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Is this really the path that I want to follow? Because if we take upon ourselves his name, that's the path we're covenanting to to walk. Is this Christ centered life? It's a powerful thing.
0: You know, I, I think it's very succinctly put here in verse 18, chapter 12, because Moroni is just given all these examples of how these things have been done by faith. And he says that neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith, wherefore they first believed in the Son of God. And this kind of gets at what you've been talking about over and over again about faith and belief, because a lot of times we can say, you know, we believe in Christ. Just like you said, until we see where he's going. (laughs) But then, you know, if we have faith, we talk about having faith in Jesus Christ. And I remember growing up and learning about first principles and ordinances of the gospel, you know, first faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember my dad talking to me about, okay, you know, the first principle of the gospel is not just faith. It's it's more specifically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and talking to me about why that stipulation was important and i understood it in a way then and i understand it in a in in a another way now not a different way but i think maybe a little more complete way now that that faith that concept you're talking about being this innermost driving force of of who we are and why we act the way we act being founded upon the way of christ That is something very different from just believing in Christ, right? Or believing that he's a good person and that what he taught was good, but actually taking upon ourselves his name and going that way because we believe in that as a way of living as such. Not just that Christ lived that way and he was perfect, but that we. Can and should live that way because of who we are um, in relation to Him and God. That, just very succinctly put, I think in that verse eighteen there about faith versus belief. You know, then we start getting into this really interesting discussion about the awkwardness of language, written versus spoken. Sometimes I feel like I can write better and and express myself better when I'm writing versus when I'm talking. And then other times, like if I'm having a conversation, uh, things work out better talking than they do writing because of all the metaverbals and nonverbal type of communication. But then there's other types of communication that it makes more sense to write them down. And so I'm really feeling here what Moroni is talking about more than I have before because Moroni seems to really enjoy the conversation, the back and forth. In fact, that's the way he writes here. You know, he has this conversation with God and he writes it down here for us. And it's this back and forth exchange. And I really feel that in the podcast. I gave a talk on Sunday and I got up and basically said, this is actually a little awkward way for me to talk about what I believe because I really actually feel like I do a better job of expressing myself when I have some back and forth conversation like I do in a podcast. (laughs) But if I just have to like spout it out with no sounding board or anything in particular, it's more difficult to do that. So when like you're sitting down with the person, you're having conversation, it's a different atmosphere. You know, it's a different way of communicating even though we're using quote unquote the same language. When you really get down to it, it's not quite the same language. You know, you write differently than you talk you use different words, different cadence, different sentence structure. You don't have that metaverbal, nonverbal communication. So writing and speaking are very different modes of communication. And uh, so anyway, I'm really seeing that in what Moroni is talking about here and him saying, you know, he he really is more adept at the talking and the the conversation thing than the writing thing.
1: Yeah. You and I were talking beforehand about – Kind of bringing a lot of this together because what you were talking about over with verse eighteen and what you just said there about uh the writing and the speaking. You and I were talking before we recorded about how Moroni has these feelings of in, almost like an insecurity. He's talking about how the Lord has made him strong into speaking but weak unto writing. The brother of Jared was made strong into writing, and Moroni kind of laments that he doesn't have that. And so it must be a purpose in God, right? And so that's where we get this. Uh, the famous verse 27 that talks about weaknesses becoming strengths. You and I both saw that in a different way, and I'd like to hear again what you had to to say about that, Ben, because again in verse 37, it seems to be that this kind, benevolent, loving God that we are talking about has a certain way to be able to chastise or be able to, to get us to kind of get over ourselves, while also completely alleviating the weight and the burden that we were under. And I find that in verse 37. I think it's really fantastic. But here in in verse 26, Ben, I was really interested in what you were talking about before, about how you saw verse 26 differently, about the fool's mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. Because the way that I've read that before, and I think is the, kind of the more popular way to read that and interpret that, the more, most common way, is for God to basically be saying, like, disregarding, you know, fool's mock. It's like, whatever. It's just fools are fools, leave them be. Almost like, you know, you and I are the righteous ones, they're the idiots, leave them alone. But it seems to be there's a little bit something else going on here. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I have often looked at this phrase, fool's mock, as a an, an accusation that the Gentiles, that Moroni is concerned about here, that, that won't... Will stumble, he says, because of the placing of the words. I used to look at fools mock as an accusation of the Lord that those Gentiles were fools, and that that may be what it means. But there's there's another way to take it here, that actually the Lord is telling Moroni that the meek Gentiles. It says, "My grace is sufficient for the meek." In other words, those of the Gentiles that are meek are not foolish. You know, fo- uh it seems like meekness is sort of an antithesis of foolishness here that they rather as they as they read this and are seeing your weakness and being exposed to this likening it unto themselves in the sense that they are their own weakness is being revealed in this they will be humble about it and it, they will mourn Right. And so they will begin this beatitude process because they will be poor in spirit, you know, letting go of that stuff, mourning, they will be comforted. In fact, just in the next verse after the Lord stops talking, Moroni says, having heard these words, was comforted. And then what's the next beatitude? I'd have to come back and look, talk about so much. But, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. So, Uh, there's a lot of Beatitude talk here that I think is interesting. Anyway, going back to that phrase, fools mock, I've always read it as a very harsh way, you know, of just saying, oh, they're just fools, right? And I don't think that's what the Lord's saying. He's telling Moroni, he's saying, mocking is a thing of fools, but that actually what the Gentiles, the Gentiles will believe your words, Moroni, and they will because of my grace. So get over yourself, this isn't your work. <laughs> People aren't going to lose their salvation because you didn't know how to write well or something. You know, I'm taking care of all that. That's why he gets over in verse 37 It says, if they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful. Again, I used to look at this as a little bit harsh. Like, Maron, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, Gentiles, nobody cares about them anyway if they don't have charity. You're the only one that matters, you know. <laughs> right. That's not what the Lord is saying. What he's saying is that get over yourself, Moroni. It's not up to you whether they have charity or not. I mean, I know you prayed that I would give them grace so they have charity, but it's not going to affect your salvation, your work. You have been faithful, and my grace is sufficient that your work will persuade everyone that is supposed to be persuaded by it to believe in and follow me. I like what you brought up about uh, in terms of this little bit of rebuke, but But man, in in just the way that only the Lord does, I wouldn't say can because I think we could learn to do it better. But in only the way that the Lord seems to do it in the scriptures, this rebuke in such a loving, perfect way of Moroni saying what we might say, get over yourself, Moroni, it's not all about you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I pulled out this time as well. And I was fascinated when we were talking beforehand that you had just a little bit different way of being able to explain it in, in a fuller context than what I had come to so far. But it's that, yeah, in verse 25, it talks and he says, and this is Moroni talking, where he says, Wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness, and we stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear lest the Gentiles will mock our words. And I'm like, man, that's <laughs> that's actually a really sincere Humble thing. He's he's writing on gold. He realizes he's etching this in. He realizes he's misplacing his words. Maybe he doesn't have the education that he hopes he would have. I don't know what Moroni's education was, right? Maybe he's borderline illiterate. Maybe he has all the education in the world, and he, just his language isn't sufficient. Whatever it is, he has an insecurity and a fear that what he's the importance of what he's doing and the task that he's having here is not going to measure up. And so when he brings this to the Lord. He's looking at people mocking him because of his inability to write. And yet, when the Lord says that fools mock, but they shall mourn. You know, when I read it this time, whenever I see mourning now, right, it's just (laughs) like the attitude of red lights go off. (laughs) And I see this that, yeah, right now they're mourning you because, or they're mocking you because they don't truly understand they're not poor in spirit. They haven't emptied. They still have all of this baggage. And it's from their stories, their narratives, their just who and what they are, that they're going to mock you. But for them to mourn, they're going to have to eventually give that up. And so it's this, almost like this declaration from God saying, Listen, you're worried about them making fun of you and of possibly being turned off because of you. but And they're going to mock you. But they're also going to mourn. And because of this mourning, my grace is sufficient for the meek. Just like you were talking, they're going to enter into this relationship. There's nothing you can do to screw them up. I've got this. Just like you said, Ben. I think that's one of the most beautiful ways of interpreting this and of seeing this scripture. And in verse 37, when it says, and it came to pass, I mean, guess before that, from 26 until 37 is this back and forth conversation with Moroni that Moroni is talking to God and God's talking back. And so Moroni is trying to reason and rationalize his relationship with God. He's like, I know, I remember that you said this, and I know that you're a God that does this. And and he's trying to like be self-assured, right? Until finally yeah. God comes yeah. down in verse 37, and he's like, listen. And it came to pass that the Lord said unto me, if they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful. And yeah, it's when we were talking before, I brought up that this reminded me of 1 Samuel 8 when the people in Israel in the Old Testament had been ruled by judges forever and ever. And eventually they wanted to have kings. And so they went to the prophet Samuel and they said, we want to have kings. Now it's not explicit in the text, but you can definitely see what is being said here. Because in verse 7 of chapter 8 in 1 Samuel, it says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And what's fascinating about this verse is that the previous verse in 6, it says, And this thing, which is the people wanting a king, displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Because if a king's judging you, the prophet's not, right? So give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And so when Samuel calls to the Lord, the Lord's response is, They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me, which almost tends to lend that Samuel was going to the Lord saying, Lord, they've rejected me. They're going to reject me, the prophet. And the Lord saying, no, 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 no.
0: You got a pronoun problem.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. You got a, you got a massive pronoun problem. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. It's not about you, Samuel. And in a lot of ways, I see that same message coming out here in Ether, where the Lord is telling Moroni, listen, Moroni, this isn't about you. It was never about you. You're the vehicle that I'm using to do this, and I know you're doing it to the best of your ability. You're going to be taken care of. You're justified. Your accountability is taken care of. Stop being worried about things that are out of your control. I'm God. Let me be God. You be Moroni. Moroni. You're good at being Moroni, let me be God. And in that way, it's a rebuke. But if I I can imagine that if I had all those worries and those concerns because of my own ego, because of my own, my own uh natural man, and God said, Let that go, it's a rebuke. But also on the back end of that, what a beautiful release and freedom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For Moroni just to be like, oh. I never had to worry about that to begin with. I just right. have to do exactly what I'm doing, and God's like, "Yeah, that's all I've ever asked of you." And Moroni, I can imagine Moroni being, "Well, I wish I would have known that beforehand." And God's like, "Well, I gave into you weaknesses that you can make them strengths, so that you could come to that knowledge." And Moroni's like, "Oh, good point, God." And God's like, "I know." So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this kind of goes back to you know, Mormon chapter nine. This this great. A dripping with humility verse here, 931, you know, but give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. So, yeah, you know, Moroni has really learned this principle well here. And the fact that he recorded sort of this back and forth conversation that he had with the Lord, it's a great little piece of, of scripture slash poetry even. That uh, gives us some insight into how the Lord works and uh, Moroni's thoughts and feelings on the subject.
1: Now, we were both talking about how Moroni, I think it might be because of his father. The last two chapters of the Book of Mormon, you know, the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, in Moroni because Mormon dies in battle. It's like he's writing the plates, he's writing his record, he's doing his thing, and then he just suddenly dies in battle. So we, we never get an official farewell from Mormon. I don't know if Moroni is compensating for this compensating this <laughs> but like you were saying beforehand ben he like says goodbye to us officially like three times he does <laughs> so, <laughs> and and so we get one of those farewells i think it's the second farewell we get in the end of chapter 12 and it's a beautiful farewell it's just he's not done after he gives us a farewell he's like he comes back in verse in chapter 13 and he's like and now i Merle, and i proceed to finish my record i maybe, <laughs> maybe i i bid you all farewell too early But in that, in verse 38, And now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. And then shall you know that I have seen Jesus, and that he hath talked with me face to face, and that he told me in plain humility, even as man telleth another in mine own language concerning these things. Now, I love this verse in that he told me in plain humility even as a man telleth another in mine own language you know god has the ability of having this infinite powerful language and knowledge and yet he came to moroni in moroni's language and i can imagine moroni there saying you know god you could you could do anything you could be everything and all of this in which you are but yet you're here with me at my level you come to meet me where I'm at, not where you're at. You don't, you don't condemn me because I'm not raising up to your level. You come down to me and you are here with me and you're sitting with me and you're talking with me in my own language. And I think this in my own language, we can also take that out to mean more than just the, the grammar of whatever his particular Nephite language was at the time, but it's in his understanding, in his way of being, in his way of communicating, in Everything that Moroni was, Jesus came down to him and he met with him at that level. And for a God to do that, I, I can imagine that word there, plain humility. It's just, it's a beautiful characteristic of nature of God.
0: It is. That, that phrase, plain humility, is very interesting to me. For him to say that Jesus came to him in humility, you know, that that Jesus was the one exhibiting the humility in the situation. It's It's just so interesting for that to be the God that we worship, you know, is, is so counter how the world really operates on every other level. So, yeah, I mean, Moroni here, he does seem to be signing off. He says, I bid farewell unto the Gentiles and to my brethren. And then he says in verse 40, only a few have I written because of my weakness in writing. You know, it's almost like he's, his hand's getting tired, it's cramping a lot, he's got arthritis or something, he's getting old. It says he has awkwardness in his hands back in verse 24, but this verse here I, I love as well, 41, and now, I would commend you to seek this Jesus, of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. Amen. Yeah, this seems to be the second last testimony of Moroni, and we're going to get a third last testimony of Moroni. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really curious as to what's going on here. You know, it seems like Moroni thinks he's done at, at the end of Mormon chapter 9. He thinks he's finished the record, and he's, he's going to seal this up, he's going to bury it, and, and it's going to go forth. And then... For some reason, he goes on and gives us Ether and starts writing a bunch in it. And then he gets to chapter twelve, and he hasn't even finished his abridgment of the record of Ether. And he's he's already like, man, I'm not gonna get through this, guys. I better sign off right here. <laughs> I'm done. If <laughs> if I you know if I don't uh, continue, then sorry, you didn't get the rest of the story. But uh, by the way, all the Jaredites are destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't really know, but but I see a little bit of a sort of an interlude here, right? So he kind of ends, and then we get chapter thirteen, and it's almost like Moroni coming back in and saying, "Okay, so I'm not guess what? I'm not dead yet, guys. So we're gonna go ahead with the story." <laughs> <laughs> and he gets into some some really great stuff about the prophecies of Ether here about new and old Jerusalem. This is something I'm I'm still digesting a little bit. Um, I've always loved the the type here that he says He says, For which thing there has been a type, for as Joseph brought his father down into the land of Egypt, even so he died there. Wherefore the Lord brought a remnant of the seed of Joseph out of the land of Jerusalem, that he might be merciful unto the seed of Joseph, that they should perish not, even as he was merciful unto the father of Joseph, that he should perish not. Wherefore the remnant of the house of Joseph shall be built upon this land, and it shall be a land of their inheritance, and they shall build up a holy city unto the Lord, like unto the Jerusalem of old, and they shall no more be confounded until the end come when the earth shall pass away. So, I've always loved this sort of like little, this type here where we have this story of the Old Testament of Joseph and the remnant being likened unto the the Nephite people as a whole being preserved and taken away so that then in the last days, their record and testimony could be brought forth unto the spiritual salvation of the whole house of Israel as in the whole earth. Joseph being the, the type and representation of of what was to come with that is, has just always been really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, that was interesting to me too. And in verse nine, when he says, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and they shall be likened to the the old, save the old have passed away and all things have become new. You're like, wow, what does that mean? So you start reading in verse 10 about the new Jerusalem and verse 11, you know, it talks about the Jerusalem of old and the inhabitants. I'm like, yeah, this is some really great stuff. And then verse 12, it's is like, and when these things come and bring it to pass the scripture, which saith that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And you're like, wow. And you're getting into it. And then Moroni suddenly says, and I was about to write more, but I was forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, He's Dogone. like, just
0: about to say, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'm done.
1: I'm done. And it's so funny because it comes only 13 verses after he starts over again. Like he, he gives us grand farewell of like I've I've literally seen Jesus he's talked to me in humility I commend you all to Jesus amen Oh by the way I have a few things more to write and as I was writing them God's like no no more and I was like okay <laughs> And so he's like but what do I write on now and then he's like well let's write about the destruction of the Jaredites and so he spends the next like six pages talking about the worst depravity in the entire book of Mormon and we get the story of Coriantumr and Ether coming to Coriantumr And telling him to repent, and if he repents, then he'll be saved, and his people will be saved. But he takes two million people under Coriantumur, and they all die. And he's down to his last, like, fifty. And Coriantumur starts to think, Oh, maybe I should have repented. (laughs) You think? That's the worst possible time to have that realization.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Right.
1: So, I just, it's it's so awful. And I, I can only kind of laugh at it because... You either laugh or you cry, but this this is just so bizarre in this way of being because the people have become so wicked and perverse that they were completely drunk with their anger, right? It says that they were drunk with anger as though they were drunk with uh, wine. And right. I'm like, wow. I mean, can you imagine that state of being? Can you imagine that way of being to where you come in at night and you just sleep on your sword because the curse on the land is you've literally lost possession of the land, right? You know, the, the blessed are the make for they inherit the earth. And Cain, he is a vagabond upon the earth. He has no place. He has no belonging. And so these people have the same kind of curse. That they, they have no way to be on the earth anymore. Everything in the way that they are on the earth is a pollution on the earth. And so when they sleep, they sleep with their sword in their in their hand, and they wake up and they fight, and they fight until the end of the day, and they come back having lost, and they mourn, and they lament, and then it's just the next day it's all over again. It's just, it. it's a very heart-wrenching saga and a tragedy at the very end.
0: Yeah, so... Chapter 14, verse 2, I think sums up a little bit of the attitude here. It says, Wherefore, every man did cleave unto that which was his own with his hands, and would not borrow, neither would he lend. And every man kept the hilt of his sword in his right hand in the defense of his property and his own life and his wives and children. You know, it's this this jungle, dog-eat-dog type of world that I think we can see sort of this attitude in some people that are, are very... Interested in the idea that they would be able to defend themselves against the whole world with their their armada, <laughs> right. and you know, there's also this other attitude going on here. I years and years ago, I went to a a course that did uh, uh, firearms training, and it was really well done and very professional, excellent, and very interesting stuff. I'm I'm glad I went. But there was one, this one little part of the training where they they put, they put took this woman and they were trying to prove a point here and they, they put her in a scenario where she was in a grocery store parking lot and she was putting her kids in her van and there was just this random person walking around talking on the phone. And they had her confront this person with her firearm just for getting too close to them, for getting too close to her. And the whole situation seemed, you know, so bizarre for me. Obviously they were, you know, it was the the whole point was to do training in this scenario, but my thought it was immediately who in their right mind is going to threaten violence on another person for just getting too close to their van in a grocery store parking lot. What kind of a world are we living in when that is you know, your first knee-jerk reaction response to to somebody. It's this kind of world of verse two, right? Like you just always have your weapon with you and anybody that gets near you, it's like back off, buddy, or I'll shoot you, you know? And and I was like, man, that is not, that's not the kind of world I want to live in. I don't think that's the world that we live in at all. That's not my experience at all in the world. But I was just realizing that, you know, from that Looking back on that training exercise that that people could be driven to that type of mentality if they did have these type of experiences that we see in verse two. Come over to to verse 25 of chapter 14, and thus we see that the Lord did visit them in the fullness of his wrath, and their wickedness and abominations had prepared a way for their everlasting destruction. So I think this verse actually does a really good job of solidifying the point that we've made previously about this concept of the wrath of God or the fullness of his wrath, because the entire chapter is talking about how the Lord is constantly trying to reach out to them and, and seek repentance, but they're just totally wicked and they're just killing each other all the time. And they're back and forth and slain. And then we get this really interesting phrase that says the Lord visited them in the fullness of his wrath. So obviously Talking about something different from the Lord is the one down here making the people fight against each other with anger and destroying them, right? The fullness of the wrath of the Lord means something else. It doesn't mean that the Lord is down there committing violence and mass murdering people.
1: Yeah, I picked up on that too because usually we do. We see God as this wrath. He's going to pour out his wrath upon the inhabitants of the earth. As though there's this proactive, vengeful, violent, angry God that's coming after you. And how does that square with the Sermon on the Mount, God that we've learned through Jesus Christ and that we've learn in 3 Nephi chapter 11 and on? With this, I read that and I said, yeah, because the people themselves are so wicked on both sides. Is God down there like a monopoly and chess, you know, like a chess player? putting all the layers on the board and, and taking off the knight and taking off the bishop and is like, yep, yeah, I killed that person, got that person taken care of. And so he's like offing people as they go. You know, that's not what's going on here. These people are leading themselves into wickedness. It's by the wicked that the wicked are punished. You know, we learned that in, Mo- in Mormon. And so here, and thus we see the Lord did visit them in the wrath and the fullness of his wrath and their wickedness and abominations had prepared a way for their everlasting destruction. That the wrath here is God's allowance for consequences to happen for Mm -hmm. us to be the recipients of our own consequences.
0: Mm -hmm. So that verse, like, almost perfectly defines that whole concept of that book you were talking about. Just that verse (laughs) right there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just that verse right there. I I, yeah, I stopped when I read that too. I read it over and over again and marked it on the side. And it is. It's a very powerful verse.
0: Closing out with chapter fifteen, we have uh, like you were talking about these. We have two instances where Coriantumr tries to quote-unquote repent um he writes to shiz and says hey buddy if we keep going like this it's not going to turn out good for anybody we need to we need to stop shiz says no we're not going to stop until i kill you or, it's not apparent whether coriantum is okay with that or not <laughs> you know it, it's not obvious whether coriantum was willing to give himself up It just says that you know the people were still angry against each other and 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 went to battle. So I don't know what would have happened if Coriantumr had said, "Sure, I'll give myself up." From the text, it seems like that wouldn't have done any good. The people would have still kept fighting because of the point that they were at. They were just their entire lives were just consumed by murder. And um, I mean, it talks about it multiple times in here. You know, like you said in verse twenty-two, drunken with anger. Verse 15, they had armed their men, women, and children with weapons of war. And this is very reminiscent of what happened exactly with the Nephites. You know, everybody was armed and, and they were just completely destroyed, howling lamentation for the loss and slain of their people. We end up here with this last little to-do between Shiz and Coriantumr, where Coriantumr cuts Shiz's head off and Shiz, without a head, push, does a push-up. And then falls down, and it's like, I, I'm I'm not sure exactly why Moroni put that in there. I mean, there's a couple of reasons Moroni could have been like, "Wow, this is super cool. <laughs> Gotta put this in here."
1: <laughs> it's like, guys, I've looked over all the records. This Nobody so does cool. this cool.
0: <laughs> or or Mormon was like, "Hey, Moroni, when you do this part, don't leave this part out. This is super cool." <laughs> You know, and but all, all jokes aside, it, you know another more meaningful reason maybe that he put this in here was to show that this this concept that Mormon talks about when he talks about how the Nephites they they cursed God and wished to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle for their lives. You know, with the sword during the day, Shiz was just he was so bent on death that even without a head, his body was trying to kill Coriantomer. You know, like that was, he was so animated by this that, that it's sort of that if sort of a representation of that, right? That, that uh, Shiz was so full of anger that even without a head, he still was trying to kill Coriantomer.
1: Yeah. That's been the interpretation that I've been able to adhere to as well for a while is that he was so adamant about avenging his brother's death Because Coriantumer did come to him twice in 15. He came to him and he said, Hey, if I give myself up, uh, will you let my people live? And Shiz says, Well, so long as I get to slay you and kill you. And we never actually get Coriantumer's response, but we get that Coriantumer's people are like, Oh, and and, and they go and they fight anyway. So we never actually get an answer to any one of these situations about who's answering what, other than in verse 19 in the final petition. When Coriantumr came in and said, "Shiz, desiring that he would not come again to battle, but that he would take the kingdom and spare the lives of his people," but behold, the spirit of the Lord did cease striving with them, and Satan had full power over the hearts of the people, for they were given up unto the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, that they might be destroyed. Wherefore they went again to battle. So just like you said, Ben, it's it wouldn't have done any good with the people of Coriantumr. He wanted to save them. But they wouldn't be saved. I mean, this is this is a very interesting Christ type situation, where Coriantumr is now willing to self sacrifice. He's willing to step into that role of the self sacrificial lamb for his people, but his people will not. And so we have this almost this Christ figure in Coriantumr towards the very end now, where he's willing to sacrifice, but his people are still bloodthirsty.
0: They're not willing to accept it, yeah.
1: They're not willing to accept it even if he sacrificed for him. So he doesn't. So he sticks around to the very end. And yeah, and I think that whole story in that graphic end of Shiz at the very end where he has his head cut off and then he raises up on all fours. I think that is supposed to entail and show just how much the body memory, the whole body of everything, even without the head, the body was still coming back to fight. It, just, it, it wouldn't do anything else but... And then you come down and you, and you read it a little bit, uh, the very last verse of 15. And this seems like it's rushed, mm-hmm. you know, chapter 15, more than any other chapter feels very rushed, not urgent, not like I need to get this done, but it's like, like, this is really urgent that I have this, but it feels rushed. Like I just need to get this story done. And so it it takes, it seems to cut a lot of corners. And even Moroni said that I couldn't write a hundredth of what would, would have, was there to be written. But, you know, he goes through this whole, like, final week of the battle, and then Coriantumur lives, and then he says, Oh, and by the way, the last words of Ether are this. Where the Lord will that I be translated, or that I suffer the will of the Lord in the flesh, it mattereth not, if it so be that I am saved in the kingdom of God. Amen. And that's it. And then we have the end of it. So... I do feel like there was a sense of being rushed through the last of 15. Whereas you don't kind of get, you feel that he had more of a time to sit down in like chapter 12 Mm -hmm. and really think about these things. And he's having a conversation with Jesus and he's really contemplating this. But then when he comes back in 13, he's like, Oh, you know what? Let's just, let's, let's talk about some good stuff. Oh wait, God says I can't talk about some good stuff. All right, well let me finish up the story. So then 13 and 14 and then 15 seems really rushed. And so I think, there might be a little bit maybe into the life of Moroni as he's writing these things that he had to do it quickly,
0: yeah, there's something going on here, you know, like he has these spots where he he stops writing, and I don't know if it's because like you know maybe the Lamanites are about to get him, or he maybe he gets sick and he thinks, I'm old, and I'm not gonna recover from this and and he finally does or or he has some sort of problem writing you know, with his hands that he he thinks i'm not going to be able to continue i'm going to have to stop here you know my hands don't work anymore there, there's a ton of different possibilities as to what is going on here but it really does humanize what's the book of mormon in either way you know like it makes it real in terms of this really does feel like something somebody would write you know when they're they're just trying to finish something up you know, they may end it a few times. Oh, yeah, postscript, post-postscript <laughs> type of stuff, you know? <laughs> post-postscript. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I get the same feeling. Well, next week, Ben, we are going over the Book of Moroni because he's not done with mm-hmm. us yet. Uh, we have a couple more chapters, but we have one through six And for next week. These are the shortest chapters in the Book of Mormon, but yet <laughs> – it seems to be that we've noticed that the short of the chapters, we're like, oh, yeah, we should definitely get over that. that that'll take an hour to talk <laughs> about. And then they end up taking a lot longer yeah. than we planned. <laughs> but uh, so I, I have every uh, every thought. These might actually go further than what we planned. But, uh, man, we got the sacrament prayers coming in yeah. here. We have, yeah, just a, a bunch of really great stuff that I look forward to. Me too. Cool. Well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, leave them message us let us know otherwise we will see you again next week until then I'm Shiloh Logan
0: and I'm Ben Peterson
1: thank you guys for listening